Okay, we're up to chapter 5 of Pious and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer by John Brown of Wamfrey. Chapter 5 is uh, entitled Prayer Cleared to be a Duty. So we're going to be talking about <coughs> this idea that prayer is a duty. Uh, once more, John 14, 13, and 14 which is the theme, the, uh, the verse that's giving a theme to everything that Brown is expounding in the book. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, uh, we're going to look at prayer in terms of duty. And first of all, as we um, go through this, Brown is going to expound prayer as duty in terms of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and then he will talk about it in terms of being a duty uh, with respect to other uh, aspects of, of Christian life. So... We're going to begin with question 60, what's supposed when our Lord encourages disciples to pray. <clears throat> the supposition is uh, that prayer is, in fact, an unquestionable duty. Whatever else uh, we might want to say about prayer, and he's going to have a lot to say about it, we're not very far into the book yet. But a good place to begin the discussion is considering prayer as duty, and that it is a duty. And of course, you know, if it's an unquestionable duty, then <clears throat> Brown is saying we have to understand this is not optional. Uh, we know that there are, and we've talked about this. Uh, in terms of the, the catechism, uh, the, the idea of offering up our desires to God and asking according to His will. <clears throat> uh, we know that this is an avenue of, of communion. But even if it's an avenue of communion... And even though he's pointed out reasons why that should be, uh, that kind of consideration should be very important to you. If you're a Christian, this should figure very high in your uh, <clears throat> assessment of, of prayer and your need to pray. If you really don't understand that undergirding it all is it's a duty there might be this inclination in people to think well you know I'm I'm just foregoing a privilege <clears throat> and I'm certain that Brown would say yes if you don't pray you are foregoing a privilege but um, there's more than that Right? There's more than that because it, it's a duty and you're, you're failing in a duty. So it's not just, you know, I'm not going to take 
the the um, Crawford dessert. Uh, there's more than that. Right? You have a duty to eat what is set before you. Uh, there's there's that idea. We have a duty here, and and you can't pass over this consideration of duty and think that it's not really a big deal, right? Because if you're not uh, if you're not performing a duty to God, that's a relatively serious offense. Right? It's uh, like any other sin; it's serious enough to warrant uh, eternal damnation, right? In in and of itself, yeah. Especially because it's a, it's a, a, a duty founded in grace. It's a God kind well, of sense it's, to allow. We're going to get into that. <clears throat> it's actually a duty that um, is taught by nature, but it is a duty which is only really going to be performed by grace. Right, so nature demands that we pray. Okay, the light and law of nature uh, is sufficient, which is why, you know, even the heathen who've never had the light of the gospel, they know that they ought to pray. They just don't know how to pray or to whom to pray. Right, they know that they ought to pray to God, but they don't really know who that God is. <clears throat> Or even what that God is. So, with this idea that it's an unquestionable duty, there, there are, as, as I said, there are several heads that he calls um, uh, heads that point out that this is a duty. Okay, it, these are manifestations, this is a duty. So, uh, the first head manifesting this to be duty 61a is he says well first of all if we consider God the Father we will see the duty this duty enforced And so he gives a series of reasons after that. There's seven reasons total. <clears throat> Beginning with 61b. This is what I just mentioned. Uh, the prayer is enjoined by him as the great lawgiver in the very law of nature. So if we consider God... The Father, we will understand that uh, that the very law of nature is pressing this, and he he brings up this fact that you know the heathen do pray, but they don't know what they're praying to or or how to pray, and so on. So they end up praying to idols. They they can't ever really make that um, uh, that full closure with duty uh, because they they lack the information. Uh, nature takes them so far, but 
because they're fallen and they're in the midst of nature as fallen creatures, <clears throat> they, they can't really improve upon it. Great, 61C. Uh, <clears throat> this is a second reason. And that is that prayer is a piece of that natural worship due from us to God as Creator and Lord. So notice when he's talking about the Father, <clears throat> uh, he is talking about He's talking a lot about the idea that prayer is something which is um, a duty inculcated in nature. Right? So the law of nature teaches to pray, uh, but the idea that we should worship our Creator, again, something taught in nature. But that, too, that piece of natural worship involves prayer. <coughs> right, uh, 61D, the third reason is that prayer is an open, plain, and practical declaration of our manifold obligations to God. and an expression of our dependence upon him. That, too, <clears throat> is, uh, I think, what Brown would call a natural duty, right? That, uh, that the creature not only recognizes the obligations to God, but dependence upon it. Uh, 61E Fourth reason is God because he's the sole fountain of all that's good whether spiritual or temporal he has to be acknowledged and honored by going to him in prayer. So again, I, I would argue, and I, and I think the way Brown is dividing this, uh, there is a bit of this argument. That's, again, a sense of natural religion drives men to acknowledge that. F uh, our God being the true and living God we have to solemnly acknowledge and declare that he is indeed and in truth the true and living God the only one who's able to supply what we need, and so on. 
<clears throat> in 61G, it's the sixth reason, um, is God our Father, and, and he's now really shifting from uh, the last one and this one, I think he's shifting more into the the uh, realm of, of um, considering the Father uh, in terms of our relation to him in Christ. He points out he's, he's God that hears prayers. Uh, and, and in that sense, we can consider he's not like the deaf idol gods of the heathen. <clears throat> And interestingly enough, Brown points out something here that I, I think um, I think it's not only true. I think it's worth contemplating why he would say that and why it would be true. But he says this: He says, "If we won't pray, <clears throat> what we're really declaring is that our God is an idol." And he's, he's saying that, um, I think because he's, he's kind of needling people and saying, you know, if you're not going to pray to God, um, it's probably because you really don't believe in the true God. You probably are not holding uh, a proper conception of God. Uh, you certainly are treating him like an idol and, and that in and of itself is actually a violation of commandments, right? So there's something problematic in the way we think, the way we're affected, the way we are interacting with, with God or not interacting with God if we're, if we're not going to pray. <clears throat> so I think that's an interesting point, you know, that you're treating God as if it can't help you, you can't hear prayer, and so on. Alright, and then finally, the last reason under this first head, number seven, is uh, that God only, it's God only that forgives sins and bestows blessings of the new covenant and performs promises made to his people in Christ. So we should consider that as well. <clears throat> so the second head, manifesting the duty, moving on to 62a, is we need to consider God the Son. And he says if we would, we would see the ground for this duty. And so if the Father is... Uh, if you will, giving us the enforcement of the duty, the ground for the duty now. And this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, and that is the light of nature may teach, um, the law of nature might command that we pray, but we're not really going to pray aright. We're not going to approach God aright apart from grace. So we need to consider the duty of prayer in light of the sun, in order to have a better sense of our ground for praying. <coughs> the, 
the fact is, <clears throat> if we if we stop at um, the various enforcements that we just went over uh, with respect to the father, we're never really going to be heard because we're not going to be approaching prayer from a proper ground. If you ask anything in my name. Right. Yeah, and that that's, I think, really what's beyond or behind this. And this goes directly back to that uh, you know, the, the verse that we have at the top of the page here, John 14, verse 13. So, so when, when you pray, we're to pray to Christ, and he will do it, believing that the Father has given all these promises to us in him. So we pray to Christ, but we remember... We're, we're, we're praying... We're praying with Christ as our ground, yes. right? He is the ground of our acceptance in prayer. So the the fact of the Father is is enough to um, it's it's enough to inform us that prayer is a duty, right? That that we really ought to pray. Uh, that we really have. Uh, reason to to address God, but that's not in all of that. There's nothing there that will assure us that we're going to be heard. Right, so we could be going through the motions and literally getting nowhere. And this is this is something he's alluded to in when he's talking about the Father. You know, the heathen are doing what? They're, they pray. They pray to their idol gods. The prayers are going nowhere. They don't ever rise above their you know their wood and, and stone gods. But. You know, even natural religion is pressing them to pray. They just don't have any ground. So the atheist who won't pray is even worse than, than the than the heathen who does pray but just doesn't know who he's praying to. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then we're getting when we get the person who says he's an atheist and all that. We're it's not. There are no atheists. They're only fools. Yeah. Right? The fool is said <coughs> there is no God. So, so you know, the heathen in that respect, they're not fools. They're heathens. But that doesn't mean that they're fools when it comes to this. They're praying. But if you if you want to ask yourself, well, why is it they um, they do all the odd things that that uh, the odd characteristics of heathen prayer? You know, the what Jesus refers to when he talks about vain repetitions. Uh, when they you know, like, I think we talked about the uh, the Buddhist uh, prayer wheels where they just keep spinning them, right? They and and actually. Uh, I think some of these prayer wheels, they position them in places so the wind can do it. So people don't even have to spin them. Why are they doing that? they They don't have any assurance that they're going to be heard, so they keep talking. Even when they're not talking, they're trying to talk. They're trying to keep up the sound of their prayer. <clears throat> because they they want to be heard, they don't need ground for it, and so what they lack in ground, 
uh, they tend to make up for in in um, you know quantity and in, from our point of view, a lot of this stuff just looks absurd. You know, why would you do this? Why would you do that? But they make up. Well, they they put superstition in the in the place of the ground. Well, their gra- their ground is superstitious. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, if I do yeah. this enough times, yeah. If I if I'll I keep hurt. doing it again and again and again, and that's not really the ground for being heard, is it? Mm-hmm. You know, they think that they'll be heard by their much speaking, but that's not the ground. Our ground for being heard is Christ, which is why the second head is so important. So let's look at. Uh, the reasons that he attaches to this. Uh, 62b. And this refers you to John 14.6. Uh, pretty straightforward stuff here. Christ is the way to the Father. And no man comes to the Father but by him. <clears throat> and he flips his proper proposition around back and forth. Um, because it is something... I don't know how anybody could read the New Testament for very long, very far into it, and not get that point. Okay, you can't approach the Father apart from the Son. <coughs> Christ is the mediator. Christ is the way. Christ is uh, the avenue of approach. That what Christ has done is the ground for our acceptance in prayer. It's all said in different ways, in different places throughout the New Testament. We see this again and again. So, of course, that's an important thing to keep in mind. The second reason, um, and this goes to what is said in Hebrews 7, verse 25, about Christ being the great intercessor Whoever lives to make intercession. He's a great intercessor. And then he he references um, that curious place in Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4, where the uh, angel takes... Uh, takes the golden censer the incense. And he says an angel that takes it is Christ and and uh, that <clears throat> the smoke of the incense goes up with prayers of the saints ascending up before God out of the angel's hand. That that is really um, uh, typical language uh, that is describing what happens when Christ is acting on our behalf as intercessor. When we pray, uh, Jesus is praying with us. That's the idea. Uh, You're never really praying alone. You're always praying with at least one prayer partner, and that's Christ, if you're praying, in fact, indeed. Because he's interceding. He's the ground. He's He's, a a intercession is what makes it acceptable. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, he, he, he filters out the, the sin from our prayers and accepts it. And yeah, he, he makes our prayers yeah. a sweet savor before God, right? So that anything um, untoward, anything that 
would have been a matter of impediment because he's taken the curse out of the broken law. All of that's gone when we pray with him as a ground. Right. 62D, or the third reason. Um, and that is, he wrought great work of redemption. He satisfied justice, paid the redemption money, and offered up himself a satisfactory sacrifice for sin. So he um, he has made that uh, that satisfaction to justice, and that makes him worthy of being worshipped and called upon as the ground. Uh, of our acceptance before God in prayer. Right? We're, we're simply when you know one of the things we're doing when we when we um, ask in His name <clears throat> is we are acknowledging this satisfaction of justice that He has wrought. Sixty four F. Oh no, excuse me, 64, 62, 62E. The fourth reason. Sixty-two E. The fourth reason is he is the great <coughs> prophet. So that we're going to him. By prayer and supplication, in order to be taught and instructed and led in the way to God. That's what he's doing. He's teaching us to pray. And that is completely in keeping with what happens when the disciples say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he's giving them uh, that instruction as the teacher, the great teacher. But the great teacher is a great teacher because he's a prophet of God. He's a great prophet. Uh, 62F, our fifth reason. He's a great king. So he's to be honored and served by prayer. He points out in Psalm 45, 11, he's our Lord. And we have to worship him. Psalm 212. Uh, prayer is part of us kissing the sun. What is kissing the sun? That's showing allegiance. That's actually that idea of covenanting is involved in that. <clears throat> right. So as our king, we, when we pray, when we take him in to our praying, uh, we're acknowledging our allegiance to him and serving him. 
62G. <clears throat> Going back to what I mentioned a couple minutes ago, Christ taught his disciples how to pray. And as we see, as we saw in Luke 11 and 18, he also, uh, in his parables, encourages men to this duty and presses them to be constant in prayer. <clears throat> and then 62H, the seventh reason, is that Christ held forth the duty of prayer to us by his own example. And he gives a lot of verses here. Um, we could look at a couple of them, maybe, but uh, let's see. Uh, Matthew 14, 28. We have it Luke 6, 12. Luke 22, 32. So Matthew 14, 28. Luke 6, 12. And Luke 22, 32. <clears throat> Matthew 14, verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Luke 6, 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Luke 22, 32. Luke 22, verse 32. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Okay, so again, there are more verses. We're not going to look at all of them. It's enough at the time, but if you look at the book, you'll see a number of other verses. It's something very. Uh, very much not only present in the life of Christ, but uh, from time to time it's actually, I think, emphasized that he is someone who prays. And so there we see, you know, that if, if certainly if he needs to pray, how much more do we need to pray? Maybe it's a duty. He's Remember, he's coming to fulfill uh, the, the whole law to render perfect obedience and this is part of his perfect obedience <coughs> this, is, this is not something extra that he's doing this is something uh, this is not like a, a work of super arrogation uh, this is actually something that is uh, a requirement of uh, the moral law and he's doing it both as one rendering a perfect obedience, but but also because he delights to do his father's will. You know, the only time uh, duty and delight uh, that these ideas become separate 
is when there's not faith present. And when there's faith present, you're going to want to do what God wants you to do. And you'll have a desire to do the duty. You know, right along the lines of what Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The problem comes in for us when there isn't faith. And then duty, uh, duty then always feels like we're, you know, we're um, uh, caught in that very unenviable position of uh, the fellow in Poe's pit and the pendulum, you know, where the pendulum swinging back and forth. We don't know when it's going to drop, you know, but we always feel that the pressure. You know, so again, when when duty becomes uh, something that is onerous, when it becomes something that we, uh, you know, we're we're doing it because we know we ought to do it, but we don't really want to do it. It's it's really a form of works righteousness at that point, and and there's really you should be asking yourself about faith. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's not a good sign if if you're feeling yeah. that way. But even for true Christians, couldn't that just be because you know the the flesh is just you know lazy and doesn't want be. to, and, yeah, and that's and that's part of that battle. You know, like where where the spirit is willing, but the flesh is right. weak. Right, but there there ought to be some part of you that takes delight in it. You know, you, you may be struggling with it, but there's still, there should be some part of you that actually delights in it. Like but I, I would say someone who, when, when there's no faith present, they, people do their duty. There are people who do it. They're, they have a form of godliness without the power thereof. Uh, they'll do the duty, but at the end of it all, it's just sort of uh, one of those moments where you sort of wipe the sweat off your brow and say, I'm glad that's over. So it's kind of like, kind of like for a true Christian, kind of like working out. Where like sometimes you don't want to go to the gym, but after you get done, you kind of feel like you feel you feel better, like you accomplished something. Yeah, I would just. I mean, I, I know analogies are, are, are limited, but they're 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 very limited. But yeah, yeah, there is that that, I, and actually today, nowadays, um, <coughs> there is there is. Um, an inverse proportion, very often. Uh, and it, it's, it's a very hard thing to balance, but very often, the more people are concerned about their appearance, the less they're concerned about their mind or spiritual things. Right? They're, one seems to take the place of the other. Uh, that That just, I think, is a function of uh, what's going on, right? In in the one case, remember, when you're born again, you still have sin dwelling in the flesh, and the flesh wants to be petted and feted and and uh, uh, to be entertained, and and you know, the flesh wants to be told you're going to live forever. And the more people are inclined to cater to that, I think. Uh, very often the less inclined they are to consider spiritual things. Right? And that's not to say that there's no profit to any of that, um, but it ought to be kept subservient to uh, what I would call soulish and spiritual things. Uh, 
matters of mind and spirit ought to take precedent. <coughs> you know, the point of those kinds of endeavors are or ought to be um, recreational in the truest sense. Uh, that moment of, of allowing the mind and spirit to uh, to have a, a bit of repose so that you can be more focused when you return. The problem is, in, in our society, I think that there's so much narcissism um, that concerns for the body far outweigh concerns of the soul. And let's move on to the third head, then, which manifested due to 63a, uh, and that is, if we consider God the Holy Ghost, we're going to see prayer is a duty. Why? Well, uh, 63b, uh, first reason. The Holy Ghost is called the spirit of prayer and supplication. Any references, Zechariah 12.10. I pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications. So clearly, uh, the idea that under the gospel the spirit is poured out, then we should expect there to be more uh, of a duty to pray, more of a concern for prayer, more of the influences of grace to pray. 63C, or the second reason. Uh, the Spirit is given as a spirit of adoption in order that we might cry, Abba, Father, in order, in order that we might pray. Three D or the third reason. This is Paul writing to the Galatians says, Galatians four six, because your sons God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying Abba Father. In other words, the Spirit is sent into the hearts of God's children to dwell there, that among other works they will be moved to pray. Sixty-three E, the fourth reason, is as Paul says in Ephesians two eighteen, by the Spirit, we have all access to the Father through Christ. That just sums up what we were talking about, like the, the grounds and all that, right there. Right. Yeah, the whole the whole idea that the Spirit's being poured out, that the Spirit is come in fullness and plenitude, and so on. all of that is pointing to the same idea. Right, that, that prayer is a duty. God wouldn't have given the Spirit to that end if it wasn't uh, a duty. Right? Because God hasn't given 
access by the Spirit, as as Brown goes on to point out, he hasn't given us access by the Spirit in vain. This is not a vain exercise on the part of God. Uh, 63F, the fifth reason is, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, 18, we're bidden to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So if we're not going to uh, make use of the Spirit, uh, we are in fact in a state of denial. Right, we're denying God. We're denying what God would have us to do by that Spirit. Yeah, and you're grieving the Spirit. Yeah, there, there's. I mean, we're drawing back. We're doing a lot of things we shouldn't be doing by refusing to pray, uh, making use of the Spirit in particular. Uh, this is a problem. And then finally, uh, 63G, the sixth reason, uh, all the graces whereby we're enabled and put in a frame to pray are of the Spirit. And he lists from Galatians 5, 21 and following, things like faith, love, etc. <clears throat> These are all things we need to pray, right? These are all the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and so we can see the Spirit then is really uh, the one who is going to put us in that proper frame. Now, do you mean by proper, proper frame like when, when you're converted or when you're regenerated or each time before you pray? Both. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can, I mean... Uh, there is sort of this um, definitive <clears throat> placing of us in a, uh, a positionally, if you will, in in place to pray in an acceptable manner to God when we are born again, when we're regenerated, when we exercise saving faith, when we're converted. But there's also the sense that every time we pray, uh, we ought to be cognizant of the fact that we are utterly dependent upon the Spirit to, to put us in that frame. In other words, the, the prayer, it's us praying, but it's the Spirit praying through us. Right? Which is something you mentioned in connection with... Um, uh, the third reason, actually, really quick. Romans eight twenty six. Yeah, you can't just expect the spirit to take over and put you on autopilot, right? You have to kind of the spirit's given you that will, so you have to exercise your renewed will, the word, and the spirit helps as you do the duty. Yes. Correct? Yeah. There's there's a so it's kind of like picking up. It's like picking up speed as you go downhill. Like yeah, there's of course there's a corresponding uh, enacting of the spirit when we are enacting. Enacting ourselves. Um, <clears throat> so that's, you know, all of that say that the Spirit, uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, when we contemplate the three persons of the Holy Trinity, each person is really. Um, in terms of what each person in the Trinity represents and accomplishes with respect to our, our salvation, is also enjoining upon 
and giving us ground and influence to pray. Mm. Taking it all together, before we move on to these other heads, I, I think one thing that we can say pretty safely from what has been said thus far To refuse the duty of prayer, as he lays this out, um, is to refuse God, but not simply to refuse God abstractly considered, but to refuse God who has revealed himself in and through his Trinitarian relations. And that is, uh, is a horrible strike. At, uh, at God. Let's move on to the fourth head, manifesting the duty. 64a. He references here the nature, state, calling, and profession of the saints manifest prayer to be a duty. So the nature, state, calling, and profession of the saints manifest that prayer is a duty. Now, what are the reasons he says that? Well, 64b, he says, first of all, consider this. Their adoption and being brought into God's family as his near and dear children lay an obligation on them to cry to God. Sixty-four C. He says their new nature, the new nature of saints, inclines and determines their hearts Godward. And he points to that verse in in Acts nine eleven where. Um, when there's a change in in Saul, the Apostle Paul, when it becomes the Apostle Paul, in Acts 9, 11, uh, he's described as now being a man of praise. Um, 64D, Well, the saints are a holy priesthood. And if we know anything from Scripture, and one place he points is 1 Peter 2.5, uh, they must by office offer up spiritual sacrifices. It is, as Scripture says again and again, their reasonable service, right, to to offer up a spiritual sacrifice. Uh, 
64E or the fourth reason. And again, he gives a number of verses. Um, we're not going to look at them. I'm just going to give you the character of all of them. But uh, there are numerous verses which point out that it is the definition, or I should say description, of the wicked in the, in the Bible that they don't call upon God. In other words, they don't pray. It's a, it is a defining characteristic of the wicked that they don't pray. And that, when the Bible talks in that manner, this is just like our rules in, in the uh, larger catechism for interpreting the commandments. Right? The, uh, when the Bible says that it's a, a defining mark of the children of the devil, they don't pray, then conversely, it implies it's a defining mark of the children of God that they do. Uh, 64F, the fifth reason. This is in relation to God as his servants. Carries uh, with it this duty of prayer. And he refers to Psalm 116, verses 16 and 17. I am thy servant. That's what David said. And what, what does he say after that? I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> so, calling upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> it's prayer. But it also has, as we've looked at in other connotations, it has a sense of covenanting going on. So there's, a, there's something of covenanting going on in this duty of prayer, too. <clears throat> but let's move on to the uh, fifth head manifesting this to be duty. <clears throat> the fifth head is the daily necessities of the saints confirm and enforce the duty, 65a. The daily necessities of the saints confirm and enforce this duty. And here it gives quite a few reasons, so we'll go through them. Uh, 65b, the first reason. Saints have many burdens, outward and inward burdens, lying upon them. <clears throat> and all these burdens must be cast on the Lord by prayer. C. Second reason that many times the saints are in the dark. Uh, they're surrounded by difficulties inward and outward, and they don't know what to do. Uh, so prayer is seeking light from God. 
65D, the third reason. Saints must have from God their daily bread and everything necessary for their life and outward well-being. And again, that is to be sought by prayer. You know, let me uh, just to, to pause on that point for a moment. Um, One of the worst things that can happen is to receive a lot of blessings at the hand of God apart from prayer. The more that God blesses you, as it were, apart from your praying, the more likely you're going to misuse and, and consume whatever it is uh, in, in a manner that will not glorify God. So I think that's why he's emphasizing this here and why uh, this is something which everywhere uh, in the New Testament in particular uh, we see this idea that we should make every request known to God and that we should, with prayer and supplication, um, petition a throne of grace for every need. Alright. Um, the fourth reason, 65E. Question real quick. Yeah. You said for every need. Obviously there are things that, that we think that are small, that, that we think that are in our power, but we're still to pray for that and then to be about the means of, of, of doing whatever we do, right? Yeah. No matter how small we might think, you know, just oh, going well, to getting my daily bread, you know. I don't know if I just, I just told somebody this recently. There was a, a minister who had been preaching on prayer, and afterward a woman came up to him and she said to him, uh, Reverend so and so, are you saying that I? I should make even my smallest requests made, make them known to God. And he, he laughed and he said, My dear lady, you really don't understand, do you? Everything you ask of God is small for him. Right? So that's kind of uh, something I think to keep in mind. You know, you're, you, in your world, the things which are small... The biggest things in your life are smaller than that to God. So uh, you're already asking on the infinitesimally small mm. end of the spectrum, uh, no matter how great it seems to you in your life, I mean, no matter how big it is. It's just, it's really, you're, you know, you, you keep asking for next to nothing. Which is why when Jesus says, "Look, why don't you just pray that the mountain be removed?" You know, that's it's it's not a big deal. It's, it's not a big deal. God can do anything. You know, it's we we think um, really everything that we think about is small. 
there's really nothing that we contemplate, no matter how high and lofty, how, <clears throat> you know, pronounced and, and, and uh, in our minds, profound. And it's, you know, from where God is sitting, listening to us, uh, go on and on about things that we think are, are mighty and profound. It's not even as important as the babbling of a child. I mean, it's, it has less in it than that. So, um, if you, you know, if you've ever wondered why why we need to keep to um, uh, the Psalms, for example, worshiping God the way He commands us to do it. There's nothing we can add. He's telling us what to do. Um, it's actually for our benefit. And, <coughs> you know, anything that we add, I mean, if, if you really think that we could make uh, something more grandiose or more acceptable to God uh, just shows you don't understand anything about God. So, yes, we should, everything, right? The Bible just says everything, whatever it is, whatever comes to your mind. But don't, don't, ever, don't ever think to yourself either this is too big or this is too small. Right? Because relatively speaking, it's <coughs> nothing to God. Um, 65E, the fourth reason, then is that the failings and shortcomings of the saints, uh, the omissions and transgressions, of the saints are many <clears throat> and pardon must be sought by prayer <clears throat> 65F The saints have many enemies to wrestle against. <clears throat> like what? The world, the flesh, the devil. Exactly. Without, you've got a body of death. There's an evil heart of unbelief within. Uh, Satan in the world, outside. Snares, allurements, temptations, right? And all of that. Is wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. <clears throat> 65G, sixth reason. Saints have many outward necessities concerning outward calling, occupation, station in the world, etc. <clears throat> All of this is to be acknowledged according to the Bible. Uh, we're to acknowledge the Lord in all our ways, and that means all of that.
Seventh reason, 65H. Saints have visitations, chastisements, crosses, afflictions, judgments from the hand of God, which we ought to pray are either removed in mercy or sanctified in us. <clears throat> We're sanctified in them. The eighth reason, 65H, or excuse me, 65I. <clears throat> the saints have several good works on their hand, uh, some of more public use, some of more private use. Uh, but either way, whatever they're doing, uh, they need to seek blessing and assurance of God by prayer. So, for example, he says Abraham uh, prays, or Abraham's servant prays that his journey would be prosperous when he's being sent back to find a wife for uh, Isaac. Uh, Paul prays something similar uh, in Romans one, uh, not not for that cause, but that he. He would prosper in his undertaking. So we even need to uh, to take all of this to God and pray that He would prosper. <clears throat> and then the ninth reason, 65J, uh, the saints have all the blessings of the new covenant, grace and glory to seek by prayer. So there are um, <clears throat> a number of blessings that may need to be sought by prayer. <clears throat> right, sixth head, which manifests this duty. Is it is the plain and express command of God that we pray to Him. Sixty-six <clears throat> B. Wherein is it commanded? We've already noted uh, it's commanded in the law of nature but it's also commanded in the written word of God, the written law of God. So the, the law of nature and the written law all conspire together to commend and command us to this duty of prayer. <clears throat> Uh, the seventh head, for, which manifests this duty. Brown says, we'll consider 
Our relations to others in the world call us to this duty. He identifies, in fact, um, six different classes of people for whom we ought to pray. Seven B, the first group. First Timothy two one and two to pray for magistrates and all in authority. Second group uh, to pray for ministers in discharge of their work. He gives a number of verses here for this. Uh, let's look at Colossians. Somebody can get Colossians 4 3. And 2 Thessalonians 3 2. Let's look at a couple of them. Colossians 4 3. Colossians 4, verse 3, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. And that we may, <clears throat> that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all that have not faith. Yeah, so, again, uh, there are a number of places commanded to pray for ministers and discharging their work. Sixty-seven uh, D, the third group, for our brethren. Again, he gives several verses for that. Sixty-seven E. Fourth group. Superiors ought to pray for inferiors. So, for example, he says pastors should pray for their flocks, fathers for their children, and magistrates for their subjects. F fifth group references 1st Timothy 2 1 here I'm just going to tell you what it says uh, what, he, what he gives you he says for friends and acquaintances and all men indefinitely the only uh, the only exclusion we have is for those who send the sins of death which is very hard to yeah, tell pretty, normally, correct? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, he's really grouping people for us. Uh, but yeah, uh, and 67G, the sixth group, is even our enemies. 
and pray for our enemies. <clears throat> so that's um, that's a, a pretty substantial list, and uh, as I say, he gives verses for all of these different uh, categories. Um, eighth, the eighth head manifesting the duty. This one is uh, an interesting thing to think about, 68a. Uh, the, the, the eighth head manifesting the duty, he says, is uh, think about all the commands that have to do with the manner or way how the duty of prayer should be performed. All of those are actually so many commands to duty as well. You can't do it in that way without doing it, right? So what are the, um, the various manners in which uh, Scripture tells us we ought to pray? Uh, 68b. first manner is incessantly without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And he gives a lot of verses for this. It's a very, actually a very common admonition in the Bible, to pray without ceasing. <coughs> 68c, the second manner he notes is we should pray exceedingly with fervency and earnestness. Uh, 68D, third uh, manner is everywhere without respect of places. He, he gives for that First Timothy 2.8 um, I think it's worth noting on this that um, that's something a lot of people have this idea that the prayers are going to be heard more or their prayers will be heard uh, by praying in a church rather than in some other location. And he's just saying, no, that there's nothing... Uh, we're commanded to pray everywhere. Right? Don't, don't uh, think that there are some places where your prayers are going to be more likely to be heard. Uh, 68E, the fourth manner is with holy hands and without wrath. So with holy hands, what are we doing? We are uh, lifting up hands to God. We're you know, showing allegiance, taking hold of his covenant, and so on. 
68F, the fifth manner is with faith. That really should be relatively straightforward. You know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you're you're not going to pray in an acceptable manner if you don't pray with faith. Sixty-eight G, sixth manner, uh, all with all manner of supplication. Sixty-eight H, in the spirit, we're to pray in the spirit. But by that, um, we, we sort of addressed this earlier, uh, but is uh, what the Apostle means by praying in the Spirit is that we, in a very similar fashion to um, the way the Bible was inspired when holy men of God were carried by the Spirit. We would allow the Spirit to carry us in our praying. We're not uh, we're not praying simply from uh, some point of origin in, in ourselves or of ourselves. Yeah. So we're dependent on the Spirit is pretty much what it means. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 68i, the eighth manner is with watching. want to pray in a, in a circumspect fashion. Uh, 68J, the ninth manner, would be fervently, with all zeal. 68K, the tenth manner, is with reverence. L, the 11th manner is with the whole heart. And then 68M, the 12th manner is mightily. Again, he gives us a number of verses to address. Some have more, so everyone has at least one verse here. Uh, these are all part of the manner. His point, his point is this. You know, when the Bible says, for example, to take that last example which he references Jonah uh, 3 verse 8 uh, to pray mightily. How should, how should we pray? Pray mightily. But when we're told to command, you know, we're commanded to pray mightily, uh, you can't pray mightily without urging the duty of prayer. Right? So, Every one of these things is urging us to the duty of prayer. As many times and as many ways as we're told in the Bible to pray in this manner, to pray in that manner, all of them are urging to the duty of prayer, or to prayer as a duty. Right, let's look at 69, the ninth head, manifesting this duty. <clears throat> Uh, 
he says, a great part of our communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus, uh, in making all our requests known by prayer to Him through Christ, in laying before Him our whole case, our wants, our straits, our difficulties, etc., all of this, makes up a great part of our communion with the Father and His Son. All right, the tenth head, this is question 70, tenth head manifesting this duty is... All the commanded duties that lie on us enforce the duty of prayer. And what he means by this is this. He's saying, we are not to think that we are sufficient in anything to do our duties to God. Prayer In prayer, we're acknowledging our sufficiency is outside of ourselves, and we pray right, we're acknowledging our sufficiency <coughs> is rooted in Christ. <clears throat> All right, the 11th head manifesting this duty, 71A. On behalf of Christ's kingdom in the world, prayer is a necessary duty. <clears throat> now, this is really, um, in some respects, one of my favorite heads that he gives here. Because we're going to see exactly what it was he is envisioning, uh, John Brown is envisioning. Uh, as being the, the subject matter of our prayer for the kingdom of God in this world. We're going to hear a lot of things that we find in our directory for public worship, a lot of things um, for which we, I think, pray routinely here, and um, for which really all churches and people ought to pray around the world. Uh, and it just so happens that... What we're praying for, according to Brown and Wamfrey, is what we might call the post-millennial hope. Uh, the idea that the entire world would be subdued to the gospel of Christ, and that, in fact, all nations and kingdoms would serve him in a national capacity. So, <clears throat> what does it entail, this uh, uh, prayer on behalf of Christ's kingdom in the world? Uh, 71B, well, Christ taught us to pray thy kingdom come, by which we need to understand his enemies being brought down and the kingdom of sin and Satan destroyed. <coughs> That's what Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come. And that means that conversely, 
we are praying for, we ought to be praying for the destruction of the kingdom of sin and Satan. 71C. We ought to be praying that the Jews would be called and brought into Christ's kingdom according to what is foretold. And he references here Romans 11, as well as, uh, I want to look at Revelation 16, 12, and 19, 1. Revelation 16, 12, and 19, 1. Revelation 16, verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Revelation 19, verse 1. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Yeah. So let me, let me just point out brief, very briefly, but I'm just going to point this out. Brown has what we call an historicist uh, view of Bible prophecy. And he sees these events unfolding in a historical sense in Revelation and one of them prior prior to um, the gospel era at the end of the messianic era the, the great triumph of the gospel is the converting of the Jews and bringing in. What is the view then that, that believes that all these prophecies were, were done before 70 AD? Preterist. Preterist, okay. <clears throat> So preterism is is the is contrary to historicism then, because they presume it, different things. I would call it a very compressed historic historicism. Okay, it's just a, a very compressed and limited historicism. Hmm. You know, they they their cutoff date really is seventy A.D. Although I've actually heard people um, <coughs> expound Revelation and everything is seventy A.D. until they get the last two chapters. So somehow, between 70 AD and Judgment Day, there's all this stuff that is absent. But they, they will see this brief historical unfolding and then everything else at the end. All right, uh, 71D. I uh, should be praying that the gospel ambassadors may be sent forth. And there he refers to Jesus telling uh, his disciples to pray the Lord of the harvest to send those, you know, send men into the harvest. 71E, fourth thing this entails, is praying the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. Again, he refers to Romans 11 here and also Psalm 67. Seventy-one F. Fifth thing it entails is praying the gospel be made successful. Seventy-one G. 
sixth thing. Uh, that the ordinances of the gospel be purely dispensed and made effectual through the blessing of the Lord for converting those uh, who are yet in fault, their fallen nature and for confirming and building up those who are already converted. In 71H, seventh thing it entails uh, praying that the day of the solemnization of the marriage of the lamb with the bride might be hastened. Let's pray that judgment day will come soon. Every time I see uh, one of these parades of filth going on in our society, that, that's enough to remind me to pray that Judgment Day comes soon. Alright, what's the twelfth head manifesting this duty? 72A. Um, a prayer is the prescribed method for honoring and glorifying God in the world. And he points out, Christ taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. So this entails four things that he identifies. First, um, that God would make us and others fit by his grace to know and acknowledge and esteem him as he is pleased to make himself known. Now he lists there, you know, titles, attributes, ordinances, and so on. But all of those are things by way he makes himself things by which he makes himself known. The second thing it entails is uh, that he would enable us to glorify him in thought, word, and deed. To D, the third thing it entails is praying that he would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, uh, everything dishonorable to himself. And then 72E, fourth thing it entails is that he, uh, praying that he would by his powerful and overruling providence, direct and dispose all things to his own glory. So we're, we're to pray for the uh, for the glory of God to be revealed. Declarative glory. His declarative glory. Yeah. And finally, there's a 13th head, uh, which is the last one in this chapter, and the last thing we're going to be talking about in this chapter. Uh, the 13th head manifesting the duty is this, uh, 73a, Prayer is requisite with regard to obedience to God's holy will. Because he points out in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
and he points out this entails a couple of things. Um, first, <clears throat> 73b, that uh, we pray that God would remove all blindness, weakness, indisposedness, unwillingness, perverseness, Because all these things make us neither uh, willing or able to obey. So the last is kind of like that in reverse. 73C, the second thing it entails, is praying that by his grace he would make us able and willing to know, to do, and to submit to his will in, in all things. So again, the point of all of these heads in this chapter is simply this, to convince us that prayer is a duty. If we understand these things, we're going to understand that prayer is a duty. And once we understand that, if we really grasp the things we've talked about this time, you'll have an easier time next time. Because next time in chapter 6, we're going to look at the great sin of neglecting prayer.